Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Kelly Wanzer, founder and executive director of Silver Lining, a nonprofit organization driving policy and innovation to ensure a safe climate within a decade. Silver Lining focuses on near-term climate risk and advancing our understanding of fast-acting climate interventions, sometimes called geoengineering, that might alleviate the most severe impacts. This is a thorny and controversial topic. Uh, solar geoengineering is an area that is oft misunderstood, and even once it is understood, it is uh, hard to navigate because there are some bad implications if it's deployed in the wrong way and some unknowns in terms of some unintended consequences that might come about. At the same time, there's risk of not doing this research, both in terms of any catastrophic tipping points that we might be coming upon in a way to mask the symptoms to buy time, but also if we don't understand it, we won't know how to regulate it. And if we don't regulate it, then we might not be able to control what happens when some rogue nation or group decides to deploy it. At any rate, I hope everyone comes away from this episode with at least a better understanding of what this topic is and how to think about it. Because I think regardless of how you feel about it, it's an important one to understand. So Kelly Wanzer, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason. It's really great to be here. Kind of weird because we're camping out here in First Round Capital's office in San Francisco, and we're literally the only ones in the entire office. It's pretty nice. We've got all the snacks to ourselves. Yeah, they, I mean, that's one thing I'll say without, you know, without digressing too much, they have some incredible snacks. I need to get out of here so I don't eat them out of house and home because it's late in the day, which is when my snack eating is the worst. Right. That is a danger. So I'll try to keep you entertained. Yeah, no, but I'm I'm excited to do this episode. It's it's um, it's interesting. Solar geoengineering, for whatever reason, when I started the climate journey back in uh, November, December, it was one of the first topics I look into. I don't even know how I ended up doing that. Maybe maybe because Bill from first round told, pointed me this way. Might be. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's it's a topic I didn't know anything about and. As I've looked into it more, I think that it is thorny and and nuanced, but important. It's an important subject to consider, and uh, and you are right on the front lines of that world, and therefore I thought would be a great person to come on and explain to listeners what it is and, and talk to me about this important subject that I think not many people know about, but more will over time. Well, thanks. Yeah. So it's an interesting topic because it tends to spark curiosity and reactions. And it sounds sometimes sort of science fiction-like. Um, the language that people use, geoengineering, usually sparks some curiosity and concern. The way that I came to the topic was looking at, you know, how close were we to sort of severe and serious climate risk? And if we were close, did we have enough measures? Do we have enough tools in the toolkit to react? Mm -hmm. And so looking at it that way, 
rather than looking at the engineering side of it, but looking at the sort of use case side of it, if you like, it's it starts to come into a frame where it says, well, do we have any fast acting responses to climate warming if we need them? And if we did need them, what do they look like? And then, then it starts to bring you into this arena of, yeah, these are engineered solutions, but they're looking at sort of tweaks on the way the Earth system works that might help stabilize things for a while. And so that, so, so it's an interesting space to be in now because the climate sort of risk profile seems to be worsening. And people are getting more concerned that we may not have enough ways to address it. And so this, these sorts of ideas are becoming, you know, they've gone from sort of tinfoil hat to sort of out of the box to sort of, oh, well, maybe these are things we need to have in the toolkit. Well, it's interesting because I think that, I mean, there's no question that there's significant scientific consensus that the planet is warming and that it's at least some major portion of it is caused by human activity. I, I mean, I don't, in, that's basically not, contra- I would say not even basically, that is not controversial at this point. I mean, there's a handful of, uh, you know, loud mouths on the, you know, on the dole from entrenched interests, but the consensus is so much that I don't think that's controversial at all. Um, what I do find, though, is within the people that believe that, there are wildly different views on how much this will impact us, how fast it will impact us, in what ways it will impact us, who it will impact, when it will impact them, et cetera. So like these catastrophic tipping points, for example, that you're alluding to, it doesn't seem to be something that at least from what I've seen, the majority of people that are in the climate fight, insiders, um, are that concerned about at least if you look over the next, say, decades. But let me stop there and, and please react to what I just said. So I think it depends on who you talk to and and what where they come from in the sort of climate community. I work a lot with climate scientists and government agencies and and people climate modelers and like people very close to the science. And the the challenge of climate is that, you know, the earth system is a complex system and forecasting what the earth system is doing is the biggest complex systems problem on planet earth. The only bigger problem is predicting the universe. I thought you were going to say it's predicting Trump's next tweet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if that's a complex systems problem. I don't know what that is. So yeah, if you factor in that to the equation. So so the, the challenge of any response to what's happening with climate is it's really hard to predict how the system is reacting to the heat stress that we're putting on it. And so I liken it to the human body having a fever you know, and if fever rises and for a while you're asymptomatic and you're fine, as the fever increases, then you get these nonlinear impacts on the body until things start to shut down. And so the Earth system has, a, has forms of that, and we don't know exactly where those nonlinear responses are, where things start to, to dramatically change. We know that they will, but we don't know exactly how and when. And the risks associated with that are massive. So one of the things that some people are very concerned about in the inner circle of science and climate is these um, disruptive risks to the polar regions, to the Arctic and Antarctic. 
And so if you take two big possible risks, one is the collapse of these big ice sheets, which would change sea levels, it would change the circulation of the ocean and the atmosphere, and it would be irreversible. And, and it would be disastrous for a lot of people and a lot of cities. Or these big stores of methane that are in the land and the, the subocean surface in the polar regions where there's some tipping point where we get these massive releases of gas from the Arctic permafrost into the atmosphere beyond our ability to counter the kind of warming they would produce. So if you think of those two things, now we don't know where those tipping points are, but the outcome of those tipping points are pretty sure are, are pretty devastating. So the question is, how do we deal with that kind of risk? And what all do we have in the toolkit for that? It doesn't mean that we don't want to pursue all of the things that we're pursuing at the macro level to bring down greenhouse gases as fast as we can. But if that risk is within a decade or two, do we have enough sort of things in place to address it if we need to? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. If we have no prior experience with these, with catastrophic tipping points even being a thing, then what makes the scientists convinced that that's something that we need to worry about as a potential outcome? Well, so they're starting to, uh, the, uh, their observations of some of the precursor uh, activity that you might expect are, are what's alarming them. So they're seeing melting rates. They're starting to see releases of gas from the surface and below the surface. Those kinds of things that they're observing that their models told them might be the worst case scenario or beyond the worst case scenario. So their observations are mapping to bad scenarios from their prior predictions. So that concerns them. And they're also starting to identify more ways, more of the dynamics that underlie why climate models might have underestimated the risk. And there are a bunch of reasons why, and there have been some recent publications about that. So there's a combination of like, you know, everybody's learning and we're learning about this vastly complex system. So I, I, before this, I was working on network analytics and data center networks are highly complex systems too. And what you're trying to do is forecast what will happen if you introduce a bunch of new traffic or you change security protocols or what have you and predict whether the network will crash. And it's, you know, traditionally it's been pretty hard to predict what will happen to networks. This is a similar kind of problem, only bigger. But what you do is try to look at the system from different angles and learn more and more about what it's doing and try to hone in on what it's likely to do next. So in this case, we're learning. The question is, can we learn fast enough what's happening? One of the things that we're learning is things look like they're moving in a direction that's worse than, we, than our average predictions were. And so our risks of some of these things that we thought might happen look like they're higher than we even thought they were. And so my point of view on it is, well, if the risk of, of you know, methane release from the Arctic is 10% or 80%, anything above you know, a trivial percent is high enough that we probably need countermeasures to deal with it 
because of the risk that it poses to almost everyone on the planet. So, so I'm a little bit less sensitive to like how exact is our prediction if we're in the arena of something material. And are we in the arena of something material? And, and how would you define? I mean, to me, um, and I think this is a great question for you to ask guests that come on your show, particularly ones that are close to the climate problem, how they think about it. But when I first got into this space over a decade ago, I, I was talking to a scientist at Stanford named Steve Schneider. And I asked him, he's quite a well-known climate scientist, how would you characterize the probability of runaway climate change in our lifetime? And this was about 12 or 13 years ago. And he said, um, I would put it in the single-digit percentages, but not the low single digits. And if you had like a high single-digit percentage of winning the lottery, you'd be out buying tickets. You know, or if we had a high single-digit percentage risk of an asteroid hitting the planet, we'd be building the big laser. That's too high. Like, you know, that's a, that's a extremely material risk against the kind of outcome that we're talking about. And that was before, you know, that was 12 or 13 years ago. And now what's happened is our experience of the symptoms is worse than was forecast. And so that probability is, is north of that somewhere. But it's very hard to talk to scientists about it because they do have a hard time characterizing what that actually is. And so the question is, how do we deal with a risk like that where it's hard for us to quantify, but the black swan nature of it and, and the, the devastating outcome of it is something we, you know, we would want to work pretty hard to prevent, if that makes sense. Well, well given that we have no experience with it, what, what kind of devastating outcome is possible and, 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 and what draws you to that conclusion? I guess there are different ways to talk about it in terms of looking at Earth history, like very large volcanoes going off that we might not have had experience of in our lifetime or asteroids hitting the planet that we might have had experience of. So we have to try to forecast the kinds of things that would happen in the context of, let's say, a massive methane release into the atmosphere, for example, that would increase dramatically the amount of stored energy in the atmosphere for a decade or something. And so, you know, so I'm from this kind of school of thought that says that we, you know, we don't necessarily have to have direct experience of things, even in the, you know, observed history to be able to, to try to estimate the kinds of things that would happen if they occur. And so, you know, if the earth system does certain kinds of things, other things follow. The ice sheet example might be a little bit easier to think about because if these big ice sheets collapse, then you know you have this dramatic reaction to sea levels and the way the ocean behaves, and that affects the way the atmosphere behaves. And so you're going to have lots of changes in a relatively short period of time. And the you know the biggest one being will affect people in coastal areas quite dramatically. So, so I guess um, my short answer to that would be, I, I don't think we need to have experienced these things to be able to forecast somewhat the kinds of risks associated with them, at least enough to think preventatively. I mean, we're doing this already in the sense of like what conservatives talk about, you know, hey, we want to move trillions of dollars in investment to try to quickly reduce greenhouse gases. So the question is just, 
for the by the same rationale that at some point there's some abrupt changes we're trying to avoid. And so the question is, are there other techniques that we have that we haven't looked at enough that might be faster acting if these risks are moving faster than we think or than we traditionally thought? Okay, so we've talked about uh, the fact that you uncovered that there was this um, non-trivial uh, risk of catastrophic tipping points and that we don't know exactly what would happen, but we know it would be bad. So then how did you get from there to thinking about what we might do about it and the work that you're doing today? Awesome question. And um, so I'll tie, I'll tie in a, something related to the prior piece of conversation to the answer to that. So there's a report that will be released on September 25th by the IPCC on the ocean and cryosphere. So some of the things that I was talking about in terms of these polar tipping points, these Arctic tipping points, they're likely to be trying to characterize. And my understanding is that report is actually likely to be pretty dire. And so we'll see more of an attempt to kind of say, look, these are some of the approaching tipping points in these areas. The reason that's related to the answer to your question is that I, in the work that I do now, and and then am very science-based. And so I look to, well, what are the scientific authorities and, and assessment bodies saying are the most promising approaches to intervening in climate if we need to? And so in in 2012, an organization called the Royal the Royal Society in the UK, which is kind of their version of our National Academy of Sciences, they published a study that reviewed potential approaches to geoengineering or what in the US they're calling climate intervention capabilities and and sort of helped sort through them to say, you know, what's material, what's meaningful in terms of scale, in terms of risk, in terms of engineering feasibility. So in 2012, the Royal Society did a study like that. And in 2015, the National Academy of Sciences did something similar. And they did two studies, one looking at approaches to removing carbon from the atmosphere and one looking at approaches to reducing warming by reflecting sunlight away from the planet. And so those studies helped to sort of help sort of sift through the wheat and the chaff and say, what are the priorities for research and what are the most viable ways to reduce warming quickly if you needed to. And in the case of reducing warming meaningfully in less than a decade or two, what the, sci- what the scientific assessment said was that the most promising way to do that is to try to reflect sunlight directly away from the planet. So you're pushing heat out of the system. And that the most promising way to do that is a variant on the way the Earth system keeps itself cool, which is ref- the reflection of sunlight from the particles and clouds in the atmosphere. And so by slightly increasing that reflection, you can push away a huge amount of heat energy. So for example, by increasing the reflectivity of the atmosphere by one or 2%, you might be able to offset two degrees of warming. And so if you needed something fast acting, like within a few years or within a decade, that based on what they knew at the time, that was the most promising place to start to look. And so for me, in terms of coming at the problem from the point of view of saying, we have some non-zero risk of runaway climate change in our lifetime, and the part of the portfolio 
where you could meaningfully reduce warming within a decade or two is almost empty. The global level of investment in options that could reduce heat quickly is effectively zero. That didn't seem rational to me. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm, I'm from tech. I've had successes and failures. I'm used to looking for high leverage um, angles on a problem, things that are technically complex, things that might not work. And so there's an opportunity for someone like me to help because we're starting from a base of zero, which is, you know, if we can catalyze any kind of investment and research in these areas, even to rule them out, that we have a part of the portfolio that is, you know, that is vacant and as a civilization and, and as a community, we're, you know, there's something that we could do here to potentially improve our risk position. If that makes sense. Uh huh. And and the so what you just described that's called marine cloud brightening. Is that right? So the general category um, in the U.S. are called atmospheric climate intervention or solar geoengineering. So marine cloud brightening is one variant of that. Another variant of that is uh, stratospheric aerosol injection or stratospheric climate intervention. So any, any technique where you're dispersing particles in a layer of the atmosphere to try to increase its reflectivity. So in the stratosphere, for example, um, the proposal is a variation on what very large volcanoes do when they go off. So when Mount Pinatubo went off in 1992, it released material all the way into the stratosphere, pushed material all the way into the stratosphere, that material circulated and it slightly increased how much sunlight got reflected out of the stratosphere. And it cooled the planet for over a half a degree Celsius for almost two years. And there was a big recovery of Arctic ice and kind of a noteworthy difference in the climate during that time. And so based on that, um, scientists propose, okay, you might be able to do that in a continuous way, maybe even a more optimized way, and continuously cool the planet by releasing particles in the stratosphere. Another variant of that is similar to what happens when pollution emissions go into clouds and other things go into clouds. But if you look at um, clouds from over the ocean from space, you'll see streaks in them that are created by the emissions from ships. So the particulates and emissions today are actually thought to be cooling the planet because they mix with clouds and they make them a little bit brighter, kind of like a white umbrella effect. So, so that the idea there is to take a sea salt mist from ocean water and disperse it into clouds over the ocean. And that by dispersing mist into somewhere between 15 and 25% of ocean clouds, you might be able to offset two degrees of warming. These are right now more theoretical than something people would make strong claims about. But the idea being that it may be possible to, in a controlled way, slightly change the way the atmosphere reflects sunlight as an immediate counter to warming doesn't counter the other effects of CO2. And at best, it would be a very limited solution. The more of it you do, the more risky it is, like medicine. So it's most of the scientists who've looked at it think of it as something that could buy time. 
And it would buy time by reducing heat stress on the system if heat stress was pushing the system into these dangerous places. And so that's kind of the way that I think about it in my work and my organization, Silver Lining, which is, you know, how do we think about making sure that we're all safe if we're approaching these unstable points and these unsafe points in where the climate system is? And while we're working on everything we need to do to make the natural system healthy, do we have the things that we need to make sure we don't lose the patient, so to speak, if that makes sense? So I'd love to go back. So so you first uncovered that we were trending worse than the models, and, and then you uncovered that if we needed to do something quickly that we weren't equipped, and then you uncovered that... Uh, potentially this solar geoengineering uh, was an area that could be something that we could do quick, then what? So then I uncovered some of the, and, and again, I I really appreciate what I learned coming from the tech industry and early stage uh, technology about what um, how you think about innovation and scale. So one of the things that I'm sure in your experience is true as well, it's who the team is really matters, who the people are at the early part of something matters. And so for me, part of it was identifying, you know, who are the teams and the talented people around the subject matter and how do we get them the resources to work or continue working? And so part of it was looking at, you know, some of the emerging efforts and saying, how do we help catalyze resources for those efforts? And how do we identify those people in academia and government and things where early innovation and early work could make a huge difference to the trajectory of the space? And uh, when, when was all this taking place that you've been walking us through just in terms of timeline? So I started... Um, I started this as kind of a passion effort, not dissimilar to you, kind of looking into climate and exploring, you know, where where it made sense to me to try to engage and help in these sort of high leverage near term risk areas. And that was about a decade ago. And so I met quite early on some of the sort of father figures of this area of solar geoengineering, Ken Caldera at Stanford and David Keith, who's now at Harvard. Um, Steve Schneider, who's no longer here, and then various people at the University of Washington who are working on marine cloud brightening early on, um, and John Latham, who who was the original kind of father of that idea. And so I was fortunate in that I got to know over a decade ago some of those people who are around the subject matter, and then, you know, got a bit entrained in learning what all is entailed in trying to figure out um, how this might work, what technologies are involved. It's quite a complicated space in that it's not, it doesn't have a clear commercial market. Um, It doesn't have a clear constituency, except sort of everyone. And it's, it was very controversial um, and a very difficult place until relatively recently for anyone to work because the opposition to work in this area, even research mostly came from within the climate community and the climate research community. And, uh, and where was that opposition coming from the fiercest? I would say the fiercest opposition, there, there are two kinds of opposition. There's the sort of uh, tinfoil hat 
contrail, you know. And that, that's within the science community? That's something no, that's different? No, that's different. So I'm just kind of setting and them aside. And I'm playing aside. dumb a little bit because I've yeah. Googled some of that. So. Yeah, you Googled some of that. <laughs> I, did a, I did a talk and I had a, a guy set up a tripod to record the talk and he was giving out buttons that had a little uh, red slash mark through a little airplane with contrails coming out of it. So, um, but, so I'm setting aside this sort of, that sort of like con- contrail, chemtrail folks and focus on the the more material opposition to this. So for example, Al Gore has been very publicly opposed to any research in this area. Why? Greenpeace, I was just at a meeting where and, they were and what and what uh, why is Al Gore opposed? So so the prime um there are kind of two flavors of opposition, but I would say the primary one that has sustained throughout and is the most prominent now is what's sometimes called moral hazard or the way that working on these kinds of technology solutions might impair work in other areas on the core problem. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, we have a silver bullet, we have a panacea, we don't have to do these other things to, to clean up the natural system is probably the most profound of the opposition. And that's pretty, it's been a pretty strongly held view. I would say more recently, people are, there, there's been some more conversation around the fact that the introduction of these kinds of ideas may be a wake-up call. And so they may not necessarily be as, they may be equally as likely to propel action as to relax people because they, they are, you know, pretty severe in nature themselves. It's like when I want to get my kid moving, I can either, I can either say, hey, if you go and do what I want you to do, like you'll get a lollipop. Or I can say, if you don't do what I want you to do, then you're not going to baseball practice today. Right. (laughs) You can quit smoking or I have this experimental drug for you. (laughs) So, but the the second form of opposition, which uh, came really strongly from the climate science community up until I would say maybe, maybe five or seven years ago, was that it would be so hard for us to predict what would happen when we did these things. And there are so many macro-level risks and unknown unknowns that you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this. And when the climate problem was less severe, let's say in the 80s or 90s, when scientists were looking at that, they'd, you know, they were looking at it, I think, relatively rationally and saying, well, we'd be crazy to do that versus stopping emissions because we really have no clue what will happen if we do this. And it, stopping emissions would be a far more rational thing to do. And I think they had, and I've known some of the senior scientists who have evolved, you know, basically they're looking at, well, what are the risks of the kind of warming that we're introducing now? versus, you know, these kinds of things. And at some point in that curve, you know, the risks of these unknown unknowns are still lower than what we know about what happens at two and a half or three degrees. And so they've, so, so that's where I think there's a, been a shift in people who are looking closely at, cl- at climate system who are saying, well, the risks of what we're walking into now are unbearably high. So I want to go back. So you started, uh, you know, a decade ago. You met uh, Ken Caldera and David Keith and some of these other people that you, you, you mentioned, and you talked about where things were at the time, how it was, you know, almost impossible to work in this area. So, but then 
I mean, that was 10 years ago. So what's happened in the last decade? And, you know, when did Silver Lining come about officially? How did it come about? Why did it come about versus the, you know, like when did it switch from a passion project to something more formalized? Great question. So, yeah, so I carried on. Uh, I was working in startups myself and early stage technology, and I did a couple of side projects to try to help the University of Washington and sort of program development. I did a project with the National Ignition Facility where they're working on nuclear fusion. So, and then about three years ago, maybe a little more than that, I, I went after my last startup, I decided it's not dissimilar to you to go full time on climate change. And with a primary focus on these near-term intervention solar geoengineering area, and I was working a lot with the team at the University of Washington who works on marine cloud brightening. This was three years ago? Three years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I also was doing a project for ocean conservancy on ocean climate risk. For me, part of the, part of the whole strategy, I guess, is the intersection of technology and climate. And part of that is the technologies associated with intervention, but part of it is how do we understand the system and how can we use what the tech industry knows how to do to accelerate our ability to predict what's going on. So one of the things I, I observed was we right now we have far greater investment in what shoes you want to buy or what ads to serve you than we do in forecasting the climate system. And some of the techniques that the tech industry knows how to use to predict things, to manage complex systems, they've not been fully applied to this problem. So I was very interested in also how do we improve the intersection of tech and climate and accelerate work on computing, complex systems analysis, and the kinds of things that might help move things faster. So part of what I did was engage people like AWS and see, can we accelerate the adoption of cloud computing? We have the biggest computing problem on planet Earth. Climate modeling takes more computing than any other problem on planet Earth. No, AWS is already booked uh, helping the fossil fuel companies do more exploration. Well, they're an arms merchant, right? They can work all sides of the problem, but... So anyway, so circling back, so I, so I was doing a few different projects, and, but in my work with the University of Washington and, and Pacific Northwest National Labs, their partner, I got increasingly engaged on, in D.C. on the Hill and with government agencies on trying to move things forward um, in the U.S. federal system. So nearly all climate research in the United States is funded by the, through the U.S. government system. And so that became a big part of the orientation also. So about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I I kind of spun that off into a nonprofit silver lining so that I could work on uh, policy and advocacy for the entire space with the idea of having a clear mission that we we want to help ensure that we have a path to safety within a decade, meaning that we have enough tools in our toolbox to ensure people that we and our natural systems will be safe and stable, which I don't believe that we have now. So we're pretty directed in what we do in terms of making sure that we move things forward kind of now and continuously. So we've been working. So so we started socializing this with members of Congress. I've met with over 100 congressional offices, started last fall, and we got our first appropriations in the 2020 budget. So we'll have some funding in NOAA and in the Department of Energy 
to start looking at some of the key science questions around these kinds of interventions. So for example, when you poke into this, you realize that the most prominent proposal for rapidly countering warming is to put material in the stratosphere. We do not currently have a baseline of the chemistry of the stratosphere. So we need observations of the chemistry of the stratosphere if we or anybody else were to go thinking about putting material in it to try to cool the planet. Or we even wanted to be able to detect someone trying to do that. So there are some kind of foundational things that we can do pretty much right away. Some foundational science questions like how do particles brighten clouds that we can invest in that will help kind of propel this forward. So that's what Silver Linings focused on, a sort of very directed kind of mission strategy to make sure that we have what we need and we and we keep things moving. And what does phase one of that look like? So like what what is the first piece of substantive progress that Silver Lining is uh, vying to bring about? Well, so I would say that one big plank of it is the federal research funding. So having money in appropriations this year and next year and subsequent years and helping to initiate programs in federal agencies in the U.S. and make sure that we have the models and observations that we need to work on these kinds of questions, that's like a first big plank of what we're doing. And we've been more successful than average in that because normally it takes longer to... It's longer and harder to do these kinds of things, but it, at least that's what what I was told. So, so I think we're pretty, you know, I, I don't want to say that we're um, happy, but but we're gratified that we've got some money going already in the federal system. Part of, another plank of what we're doing is to is to try to is to try to catalyze philanthropy. So some people are under the impression that maybe there are you know, deep pockets somewhere that are funding work in this area. And that's not the case. And so, a sm- you know, relatively modest amounts of funding in research that th- in the areas that I'm talking about are pre-commercial. These are not venture investments. This is research. But in key research can also be extremely helpful And then the third plank that we work on is how we communicate about these things and get different constituencies into dialogue about them and help position this in a way that's constructive and not um, too esoteric, if that makes sense. So do do you have a big team that's doing this or is it just you? Uh, No, I have a small team, not a big team. And um, and I've got some professional partners in D.C. who help with the sort of, you know, mechanics of how how you work the political ground. I've got a a pretty sophisticated advisory board and um, some very dedicated funders who've been also very supportive. And are those uh, individuals, family offices? Individuals and family offices primarily, yeah. So this isn't hasn't been a category of kind of foundation funding or um, traditional grant funding, at least not yet. And so we're hoping that it might move in that direction. So what do the fossil fuel companies think about this? So that's a super interesting question because I think the answer to it's a little bit counterintuitive because some people have been worried that they that this would be something that they would embrace. And it turns out, um, because I've spoken to a couple of the large ones about it, and I was told that they would never fund something like this, um, that it would be 
kind of tying them too closely to the outcomes of what's happening in the climate system. And so it's not something that they would engage on, which I found kind of not what I expected. Yeah, I just watched Mer- Merchants of Doubt yesterday on the plane. Oh, right. So okay. Yeah. You know, so now I'm like I'm right. like playing detective all the time because it's like, oh, I get it. It's like say say that it's to keep the planet stable and that it's for the good of all humankind. And really, the you know the friends of humankind is made up of like uh, you know this fossil fuel CEO and, and, and yeah. yeah. Well, and, and they are. Um, they are making some of them at least are making you know meaningful investments in carbon removal and i personally think if it if it's meaningful and serious that that's not a bad thing but in this category i don't think you know some people would be worried about them as a sort of sinister force and some people would be worried about or or thinking that they're in the back pocket as a savior but um but I don't I don't see any indication that they will get involved in in this particular area. So what are the biggest thing? And I, I know we talked about the different buckets, right? There was like the, you know, the the contrail people and, and you know, kind of the tinfoil hat. Right. And then there was the insiders in the in the scientific community that say um, there's so much that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Right. And I've done some reading. I mean, I'm you're a zillion times more deep in it than I am. But for example, uh, what will its impact be on weather patterns or will it be increasing drought or, or causing famine or, uh, um, you know, if, if, uh, how do we regulate? Because if, if we do it in one place, then, uh, uh, you know, it's not like if you pollute in a river, it affects that river, right? And so it affects that local community. But with this, if one rogue nation or rogue group does it in one place, it could affect, you know, the whole planet, right? Um, or it c- could affect something on the other side of the planet that had nothing to do with the place that did it, right? And so I'm just kind of spitting out some of the some of the concerns that I've heard, like uh, in the wild, um, and and maybe. Maybe just react to those, and 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 if I missed any big ones, then uh, it'd be great to hear what those are as well. Yeah, well, I think you, I think you hit a lot of the big ones, which is, you know, what if somebody else goes to do this, and we don't know what will happen? Um, what if people try to do it directed in one part of the world and affects other places? And you know, what about variable outcomes or bad outcomes for people from from what happens? I think those are all kind of in the big top tier of concerns. And the first, you know, the kind of the first order answer to this is like, we have such, such a low base of information that we really can't answer questions, even to know whether currently, whether we should support the idea of these countermeasures, or we should, you know, plan defenses to shoot them out of the sky. Like when I talk to policymakers about this, our level of information is too low for a policy response. So if another country went and you know launched a serious program in this right now, because of because those questions are serious open questions, we've got some basic work to do just to get ourselves to the level of saying, you know, is this is this a plus or a minus or where do we sit? The 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 thing that that scientists that I know in the field are saying about it currently, although you know with some variations, is that 
it's likely, especially with the stratospheric form, that you you would have a, a relatively wide widespread positive effect versus what happens if the earth continues to warm because if the earth continues to warm most places around the world are they get less and less livable and so in by constraining that warming by limiting it most places around the world are better off with just a small fraction like less than five percent that are worse off in most of the modeling up till now however the kinds of things that we have trouble predicting about climate are the same kinds of things that we have trouble predicting about what happens with these interventions. So there are lots of things in the Earth system that we don't, we can't forecast very well. And there are some big risks that we don't understand. So one of the things that I learned about relatively recently is when you put material in the stratosphere, it changes the distribution of cooling and heating in the like horizontal um, sort of layers of the atmosphere. So, so the outer atmosphere actually warms up and the cooling is unevenly distributed and it can change the way the whole atmosphere circulates. And that's something we don't understand. And so that's a good reason to say, hey, there are some very serious macro level risks associated with this that we would want to understand before we said this was a something we want to do. However, it also looks like it's incredibly promising versus, versus letting the, the world go to two and a half or three degrees. Like that comparatively speaking, it's a much better world. So, so those are the things to me that like compel urgency in, in, in terms of studying this stuff because the risks are, they're real. And some of them may be showstoppers. But at the same time, two and a half, three degrees is, is a showstopper. So, you know, that's kind of um, where I think those questions are. They're absolutely legitimate questions. But until we have more information, they're, they're, not, they're not showstoppers and they're not green lights. Isn't there just as much unknown about the two and a half or three degrees than there is about, about solar geoengineering? Like we we can't say more more confidently that things will get dire with two and a half to three degrees. The my my point is that uh, things could be worse at two degrees than we think, or things could be better at at two degrees than we think. And and actually, I've heard contradictory perspectives from within the scientific community about what it will take for things to get bad, or things will definitely get worse as it gets warmer, right? But like for example. How much could like the same way that um, that this is like reducing a fever to use your analogy? In a way, adaptation is as well. It's like better foot better flood planning, for example, uh, not forced migration in a panic, but planned migration in advance. Or I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. But but my point is that this is only one potential lever that we have, and uh, and there are other ones that may be less effective, but that also have less. Uh, Unknown unknowns. So I think those um, those questions are they definitely come up, and I'm certainly not a person who's going to claim to be able to say exactly what what the projected state of the Earth system is um, in the future. However, what I you know I I think there's a fair amount of consensus 
you know, it's, it's sort of gradations of severity. And the problem with this heat stress on the system and the idea of adaptation and the idea of slower moving um, solutions is whether that's sort of a linear thing that sort of gets gradually worse and we can adjust and it's not, there's not a massive amount of suffering for people or whether we have more abrupt and severe level of changes that mean a lot of suffering and a lot of things you can't adapt to. And that unknown right there, so I'm a person who will say, look, there, you know, going back to the conversation from the beginning, there's like some material possibility that we have abrupt and severe unadaptable risks that, that put hundreds of millions or billions of people, you know, in play. A lot of infrastructure, a lot of global security, a lot of our food supply, a lot of things that we need to live. And so these measures, so, so it comes to like, well, if, you know, how, where, what's the portfolio of bets that we're making? And I'm for like having a portfolio that's got a good mix against where the level of risk might be because there are some indications that we've got a fast-moving, high-severity situation in which adaptation and slower-moving measures might not protect enough. You know, you could argue differently, and I personally, I would love to be wrong, but, you know, if you go to, like, Pascal's Wager or something, like, if you make a bet and and you put some modest level of investment into these fast-acting countermeasures – and you turn out to be wrong, it's kind of like nuclear deterrence or something, you know, if you don't have them and you need them, uh, then, you know, that's, that's not a bet you can cover from, recover from later. I'm worried about the unknown unknowns of, of deployment scale, obviously, right? And, but I get your point that, that without doing research, we don't even know how to think about it. And, you know, we don't know what we don't know, but some of the things we don't know, we still won't know, but some of the things we don't know, we actually can know, right? And we can know at a pretty, you know, at a very small scale with, you know, safeguards, right? Um, and again, I, I might be speaking over my head, yeah. but that's from what I can gather. Yeah, you're doing right? well, you're doing well. Yeah. Um, and so so in that regard, uh, you know, my, my inclination will be, well, let's do some basic research, but here's one concern that I have, right? Is that... Uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but the term that I'm going to use, even though I don't think it's the term I'm really going for, but it's late and I and I'm I'm not my my words aren't that crisp, uh, but um, is sunk cost right? And and the reason I bring that up is that it's kind of like hey, um, like what's a hey? I'm not you know I have no intention of uh, you know doing. Cigarettes is a good example. Like, I am not a smoker. No, no. Like, I'm just, you know, it's like, just when I drink, like, you know, I might have one, like, here or there. I'm not a smoker, only when I drink. And, like, every smoker will tell you the story that that's how they started, right? And and the reason I bring up that analogy, right, is that there's a bit of fear as it relates to solar geoengineering research where it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. This is just research. It's just so that we understand it. It's just so that we know how to regulate it in case other people try to do it. But like, I can almost, I think I've even caught people 
when I've like watched interviews or things like that kind of slip a little bit where they say, well, they don't maybe say it as explicitly, but it's like, well, research for now until, but I mean, yeah, I mean, if you ask me, I mean, I, it seems like it, it should, it could, it would, it will. Right. So it's like, there's almost like, uh, like, uh, like I can see that it's like, well, it starts with research is a gateway drug. Right. And, 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 and it's like, once you're doing some of it, it's like, you know, you cut, it's like the seal is broken. Now that the seal is broken a little more, a little more, a little more. The next thing you know, you're a smoker. Right. So anyways, so, so yeah, I think that's fair. That's there's a there's a big line of objection to this for on the argument that's sometimes called the slippery slope or you know the sort of inbuilt momentum. You start research, you get an embedded community, you get you know, and, and you have this sort of inevitable progression towards this outcome. I'm not a podcaster. I'm just going to do one episode just for fun. Uh-huh, I mean, right. it's, you know, it's like yeah, three months in and seventy episodes. Right? It's like. <laughs> Oh man, like, you know, I'm, but I'm still not a podcaster. Like, no, it's, 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 I mean, I just kind of do this thing on the side. And, I know. I was know. just going to go to a couple <laughs> meetings on geoengineering. I know. Um, but uh, so, so the flip side of the coin, and you get into one of the interesting things about this category is it, it raises these larger societal questions. Like, and people are even more concerned about the slippery slope of technology because of what's happened with this sort of rapid development and sort of unanticipated consequences of faster moving technologies like social media or you know nanotech or or what have you or so um so so there's a like a meta discussion going on about the whole slippery slope concept and are we you know stopping ourselves to ask questions before we just plow into these kind of technologies the irony of this particular case is that Geoengineering research is actually very slow and very linear and very expensive. And so, so it's it, it's not a runaway technology in in this in the way some people are concerned about. It doesn't have a commercial installed base that, you know, but it does to to this point of like, do, you know, does it create its own momentum and and its own inevitability? And I think that's I think that's a potential question. At the same time, one of the things that you have to do when you research intervention in the climate system is you have to look very closely at what the climate system is doing and the things that are causing it to change. And so you're up close and personal to the system in a more applied way, like an engineer is. Climate research has been pretty academic. So now you're up close to the system and it's like one of the things that was highlighted for me maybe five or seven years ago was how much it highlights how you need to get greenhouse gases out of the system. And and in that way, it's a bit more like chemotherapy. It's like the closer you get to looking at like trying to counter this cancer, the better, the more quitting smoking seems like a good thing to do. People don't like that analogy. It's not the most appealing, right? So, So there's the possibility also that the research could actually cast light on or even propel action in these other areas to say, oh, we'd much rather the system was here and here and that we didn't have to try to do it this way. If that's the case, could we make progress faster if we stopped talking about solar geoengineering and started talking about better modeling and prediction? Well, because so that, that's the layer one that you would need to look at the, the solar geoengineering anyways, right? 
And that's a thing that's lacking to help us all get a better understanding. But by mentioning solar geoengineering, it scares people into preventing us from actually doing that level one that would be much less controversial. Well, maybe, but I appreciate the question because uh, one of the first things we did at Silver Lining was um, with other experts in the field, we um, developed a report and the report is called National Imperative for Research in Climate Intervention and Earth System Prediction. And so, so we look at the problem the way you're describing, which is you can't separate studying research in solar geoengineering from being able to predict what the Earth system is doing. But one way to look at it is that you're scaring people by talking about these interventions. The other way is by looking at the system in an applied way as a system you're trying to manage you're actually f- more focused on having the right tools. And so do these climate models really reflect the real system? And do we have like the statistical, probabilistic, and other modeling methods to try to actually really forecast what's happening? So it could be, and, and it's actually proven to be the case in our conversations in, in Congress, that it's actually a different way of driving investment in the models and predictions and research that we need to understand what the system is doing because it's moving it out of an academic category into applied category, a system that we're trying to manage. So if we want the U.S. to get the analytics, we need some rogue nation to threaten to hit the button and launch all this stuff into the stratosphere, and then the U.S. will race to catch up to understand. I'm just joking. But. Well, <laughs> it's a variation of the argument that says, like, hey, we need to understand this in case we or somebody else actually. And, and that's a that argument is actually really compelling one to policymakers which is everyone is reading the same reports you are and seeing that we're in this highly risky situation. And in some parts of the world, these severe impacts are occurring now. By 2025, it's predicted that in the city of Calcutta, there will be zero days where it's safe to work outside. So you have places in the world where direct heat stress, drought, and other other things are creating severe conditions. And so people are realizing, hey, this is starting to come on the radar in other parts of the world as a topic. And in China, they have a small research program already, and they have a precedent for quite large weather modification programs. And so if you're the U.S., I'm, you know, I grew up as you know, in the fine American tradition of leadership in these things and saying, well, I, I would like to ensure that we know as least, at least as much as anybody else about these things if other people are starting to look into them. Well, just as an exercise, let's pretend there's zero constraints and that, uh, and that someone handed you the keys and said, okay, Kelly, you've convinced us and you know, here's a skeleton key and you can make whatever changes you want. You can, you can bring this about in whatever way you think it will be the right way to do it. Not, not the best we can do given our current political climate or funding environment or things like that, but just the, the best way for us to most efficiently and effectively and safely get into the position we need to be to protect the planet. Like what, uh, what would you do and how would you stage it? From my perspective, I'm going to make it simple. There are sort of two sides to the coin are, you know, what are the kinds of response measures we have to keep the system stable and what do we need to do to restore it to health? And so I'm not an expert in all of the things we need to do to restore it to health, 
But to restore it to health, I would characterize it as we have to bring greenhouse gases back to close to pre-industrial levels. And we have to have pretty large native natural systems that are supporting biodiversity. And we need to avoid letting get letting the system move too far out of its current state. So that's what I'm saying about natural systems. Or that's what I'm saying about the restoring to health part. And, and so all of the portfolio that people are working on, starting with like, what are the economic drivers like carbon fees or taxes or other things to move our kind of social economic systems into supporting a healthy state of the earth system. All of those things, if I could wave a magic fairy wand, I'm not an expert, so I would say, like, you know, how can we build in, like, price of carbon, investments in research and innovation on things that remove carbon and green all of our different economic sectors, right? But for that's not my personal area of focus because lots of people are working on that. So in in my sort of personal area of focus, if I could wave a magic fairy wand. Yeah, which is, and just to be clear, so that was a, I was, that's a helpful perspective to like look at the big picture. And I I let you go because I wanted to hear your perspective on that. But that wasn't actually the question that I meant. The, The question I meant is within the context of your work, if someone gave you the skeleton key and said, okay, uh, you know, funding is not an issue, um, you know, political backlash is not an issue. Like, we will clear the way for you to do whatever you need to do because, like, you know, you, you know, you know this better than anybody, and so show us the way. Like, what would you do in that scenario? So I'll I'll give you the the small skeleton key and then the large fairy wands. Um, so the we're starting from a situation where the global level of investment and research in this area is maybe in the neighborhood of seven or eight million dollars a year and three million of that is china the chinese program and another two or three million of that is the program at harvard so barely pocket change is going into research in this area and that includes the u.s government that includes everything so the small skeleton key would say i would you know i'd love to see a group of philanthropists get together even at a modest level like 10 20 million dollars to catalyze the low hanging fruit stuff where there are researchers that can just start to drill down the feasibility of these things and modeling efforts and data efforts the big fairy wand is to say the united states is a really important player in in this kind of area because the assets that it takes to study the Earth system are big. You need obs- the satellite observations, aerial observations, money, lots of researchers, giant supercomputers. And so my magic fairy wand and, and ultimate goal would say, I, I'm with the Center for American Progress that would say we need to double our investment in climate research in the United States. Mm-hmm so that we can accelerate our ability to predict your system. And we need to get the tech industry bringing some advanced techniques onto it faster. And in this particular category, we need to make investments across multiple science agencies to get each of them going on their different angles on the problem and have active technology, modeling, data, and experimental programs in the stratospheric approach and the marine cloud approach and probably another approach called serious thinning. And that we we need those things to be done in a concerted way over a five to seven year period 
so that we can then have enough information for policymakers to say whether any of these things are relevant to scale. And that type of research, we're talking about research that would have negligible environmental impact, no real risks to people or ecosystems, but lots of scientific work and lots of process level work and some technology innovation to get us where we need to be to know whether any of these things are like an investable piece of the portfolio. So I know these are not your areas of expertise, but I'd love to just do a rapid fire just on a few quick topics just to get a sense of where you stand, because I do think it's relevant to the discussion we've been just having. Uh, How do you think about nuclear technology? Again, not my area of expertise, but um, based on what I know from people who are more expert than me, I think it's probably quite important to achieving the scale of energy that we need to support you know, all the demands of the planet in a way that we don't rely on fossil fuels. And also that the new generation of nuclear technologies is far safer um, and more manageable than prior generations. And I don't think that that's well understood. So I don't think that the new, what they call advanced nuclear, especially these small modular reactor technologies, I don't think that the awareness of the sort of paradigm shift or generational shift in nuclear technology is is as high as it could be. Do, do you have a point of view on the best path to net zero emissions? Again, not my area of expertise, but um, I think that I think that nuclear energy is likely to be a pretty important part of it. Um, and maybe a substantial piece of the portfolio. I also understand from from the people that advise Silver Lining who, who are kind of leaders in the space that um, carbon carbon capture and storage with with fossil fuel technology, possibly natural gas, could end up playing a, a pretty significant role in energy supply. And that that technology is actually working today and almost economic today. So, so I do think that it's likely that in order to meet all of the global energy needs um, and what the climate system needs, that those two technologies are likely to play a big role. And they're both pretty controversial in, in parts of the environment, climate community. How do you think about the issue of energy poverty? Again, not my area of expertise, but one of the people I really respect in this space um, who also works with Silver Lining as a funder is Rachel Pritzker and the Pritzker Innovation Fund. And she would be somebody interesting to talk to on your podcast about these questions. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she's going to, I don't know if she's the public spokesperson. I would love to have her on, but I don't know if she's going to come on, but I talked to her. Oh, you talked to her quite a bit. Okay. So, yeah, and, and, and various people in her circle about sort of, where you know where these issues are and there's also a really good ted talk on that topic from this last ted summit yeah but the, the reason i ask is this that uh if things are as dire and as close to catastrophic tipping points like there's actually a lot we can do to um you know to get to net zero emissions faster but they have consequences so for example we could draw a hard line and say like no more fossil fuels you know we could deploy the heck out of nuclear right like there's there is stuff that we can do, but we don't do it because of consequences. But actually, I think if people had a choice of those consequences versus all the unknown unknowns that we're talking about here, right, they might be a lot more accepting of some of these other things, right? And if that's the case, then 
I, th- I, I feel like if we aren't blowing the doors off on these other things, then we, it's like we better be before we evaluate seriously doing, doing this. Yeah. Well, I think that's the main point. That, I, that I, I think, to make. um, I think, I think you're right in the sense that we, we need to put our, like the pedal all of the way to the floor on these things. And when it comes to the idea of energy poverty, like I think of the problem as, you know, a, a problem of like, you know, growing energy demand in parts of the world that don't have the same standard of living that we do. And that, you know, climate change, we're not in a really great moral position to say like, well, you need to slow down, like improving your standard of living and your energy demands because we have this climate change problem that has been created by Western countries filling up the. <laughs> but, but but think about think about I mean the converse to that though is that is that is that what you're basically saying is we are not in the moral position to say you need to stop emitting, but we are in the moral position to say keep emitting and we're just going to go and like spray a bunch of stuff and we don't know what's going to happen. No, that's yeah. not that's not what I'm saying. Because yeah. remember, I'm saying that like I look at the the aerosol atmospheric interventions as strictly like a stopgap to keep things stable, not a replacement. So I'm not saying to anyone we have, we should keep emitting. I guess the point I was getting at, and it's a, it's a reinforcement of your questions about nuclear and maybe CCS is we have, we have to, we have to include in our math approaches that get these other parts of the world, the energy, that they're looking for, for, you know, some of the basics that we, you know, that we've had for a while. And so I'm not saying that that, that that's a justification for fossil fuels or geoengineering. I'm just saying we've got to, we've got to have realistic math. Yeah. I I just think it's so ridiculous that out of that we're, it's not ridiculous that we're talking about this research if we truly are potentially approached, you know, like if, if, if what you said is right about the science, right? I think it's ridiculous, though, that one part of the discussion is, yo, time to get in the bunker because, like, this is getting so bad that we need to explore things like this. And then the other side is um, we don't need to make any sacrifices. We're entering a world of abundance. It will be like never before and energy for all. And right. And it's like the there's there's just a. Uh, it's crazy how it's just the dichotomy. Well, on your yeah. on your magic <laughs> on your magic fairy wand idea, and this is not going to make me popular on your podcast, but I think you know the at the at the one percent end of the of the societal spectrum, like the things that that we can do to pull back, I think are worth doing, just on principle and also potentially material. So it's not that I'm saying that we should have a free for all. I actually think in the developed countries, especially the U.S., everything we sh- we can do to bolt down and reduce our emissions and our footprint, we should try to do. But in other parts of the world, we're dealing with people who they didn't cause this problem, and they're still looking in in some places. They're still looking for toilets and you know continuous electricity and healthcare and things, you know, that are part of some of the basic um, life security. And so in that way, I think, um, I think, yeah, I come from Silicon Valley (laughs) or, you know, I'm a product of Silicon Valley where I think let's figure out what we need and then let's figure out how to get there. And failure is not an option. 
So let's do realistic math. What do people, you know, in the developing world need energy-wise and otherwise? What is the technology, you know, options available to us? And what portfolio of investments do we need to make this happen along the right time horizon? And I think we're capable of that. I really do. You know, there wasn't an internet 30 years ago. Like we here, you know, we are the people that know how to do things that actually change the way the world works in this kind of time horizon. But, you know, we've got a multifaceted problem that we'd have to do this on a few different dimensions for its work. And so it's going to be a nail biter. But failure is not an option. So, so the stuff that I work on is to make sure that we don't let the system get too far out of whack while we're solving, you know, the problems of energy and healthy natural systems and, you know, having intelligent ways of doing things. So if someone uh, had $100 billion and they said, Kelly, this is yours, but the only way you get it is if you allocate it towards the things that will have the highest impact on uh, riding the ship as it relates to this, call it a carbon pickle or, you know, Climate crisis. You you know you use whatever word you want, but uh, where would you put it, and how do you allocate that money? I don't I don't know if I can give you the complete answer to it, but I can tell you what what I would allocate to the sort of um, kinds of solutions that that I'm working on now. The sort of near term climate intervention solutions will probably be just two or three billion of it, and the rest of it I would invest in you know, a a mix of ways of drawing carbon out of the atmosphere and ways of greening, you know, different like critical sectors of the economy. And so I think $100 billion applied in the right way could actually make, and some of it would have to be applied to policy for sure. Um, And how, how we get policies that map incentives and disincentives to how we, you know, treat the earth system is, is pretty crucial. But I think you could, I, I, I think that one could, with $100 billion applied in the right way, you could probably do it. And our last question is just, um, you know, for anyone uh, listening that is, uh, you know, that is concerned about what they're hearing and wants to know how they can help in the most impactful way possible. What's your advice? I'm going to go two sides to the question. Um, One is for people who are listening, who are concerned about climate change. Um, I like your approach to it, which is similar to my approach, which is for people to think about like where their, um, where their leverage is, like personally, where their interests are, where their network is, where their knowledge is, and where they might intersect, you know, most effectively from from where they sit. Mm-hmm. And um, but but for people who are particularly interested in you know these kind of like safety response options, climate intervention options, I would love to have them contact me in Silver Lining because um, it's such an underserviced area that both an expertise on money, a little bit of help can actually be quite material. I thought this was great. I, I mean, there's a lot to think about here. It's not a, it's not a fun, you know, it's not a fun thing to hear, but I think it's important to hear it. And, um, and I think every person needs to, uh, 
come to their own conclusions and get to their own worldview on this stuff. But I think I, one thing I can say definitively is that uh, regardless of where people come out listening to this episode, I think their worldview will be much further informed uh, after listening to this episode than it was before we recorded it. And honestly, that's all that you can ask, right? And so in that regard, I think the episode was a big success. So I appreciate the time and, uh, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. I wish you every success. Well, thank you, Jason, and thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the format and um, project that you've got going on. I think it's very valuable. And these kinds of discussions, I think, are um, kind of irreplaceable in the process. So I'm really glad to be here and happy to help. Awesome. And and regardless of whether, um, you know, I, I mean, as you know, and as everybody that listens to this podcast knows, I mean, my worldview is a work in progress, but regardless of where I end up coming out uh, on it and whether we end up agreeing or disagreeing, I, I really appreciate your intent, which is to help. And, and so and that's not to say I'm not going to end up advocating for, for geoengineering research. It's just to say that regardless of if I do or if I don't, like, you know, everything I sense from you is that you're, you know, you're in it for the right reasons and, and, and that I'm very much appreciative of. Well, thanks, Jason. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Kelly. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And... Before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.